It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them to the book of Judges, chapter 2. Judges, chapter number 2. We've been examining the question, what is the right thing to do? The book of Judges is a good book to use as a basis for uh, this examination. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that last phrase, in his own eyes, corrupts the whole rest of the statement. Because usually when we try to find out what is right in our own eyes, we end up making a mistake. But God is about helping us to do what is right. Judges chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Judges chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. The title of this message is The Anatomy of a Downward Spiral. Verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. He said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua, Judges chapter 2. What is the right thing to do? Suppose that you were a surgeon, a surgeon who traveled to Haiti, one of the first emergency disaster relief responders going to Haiti. You get there on the second day after the earthquake, and along with some volunteers who were there to help you, you set up a makeshift medical tent. But you're the only surgeon there at the moment, and you know that while there are other medical workers on their way, they probably will not arrive until the next day. And so you're there, the only surgical doctor in this makeshift medical tent. And immediately, you find yourself overwhelmed. On average, 20 people every 30 minutes 
in serious condition are stretchered into the tent where you're trying to minister and help people. Among the uh, initial people, victims, brought into your tent, there are two in particular who are in very, very serious trouble. They are both females. One is a woman. She's 80 years old. And the other one is a girl. She is 12 years old. The woman, a diabetic, is in need of emergency surgery. After uh, examining her, you realize that she has various internal injuries. She has broken bones and lacerations that would require that in order for her to live, she needs surgery within the next two hours, the 80-year-old lady. The 12-year-old girl also has internal injuries, broken bones, lacerations. She is going to probably live, but she requires surgery within the next two hours on her legs or else she will lose both of them. And you don't have the time, because you're only one person, you don't have the time required to do both surgeries within the two-hour period. You're going to have to choose one and not the other. What would you do? What is the right thing to do? Let's take a poll. You're a surgeon. You're the only one there. Scores of victims coming in, too serious. One is an 80-year-old woman in need of surgery within two hours or she will die. The other one is a 12-year-old girl in need of surgery on her legs within the next two hours or else she will lose both of her legs. Hmm? Yeah. If you would do surgery on the lady who is 80 years old, Saving her life, but at the same time knowing that by not doing the surgery immediately on the 12-year-old, she loses her legs. If you do surgery on the 80-year-old, raise your hand very high. Raise your hand high. All right, raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep it up high. Keep it up high. I want to give some of you a little bit more time to pray about it. Okay. How many of you would do surgery on the 12-year-old on her legs, saving her legs, but knowing that the, uh, the 80-year-old lady would die? Raise your hand. And uh, let me ask this. How many of you didn't vote either way? Would you raise your hand? Yeah. <laughs> you know, James says an unstable man is... <laughs> well, that's not... <clears throat> Sometimes it's difficult to know the right thing to do. In this study so far, and this is the sixth message that, that, we've, that we will have entered into in, in trying to determine what is the right thing to do, we have, we have seen uh, several different principles, and they are principles that are found in the Bible, that are also uh, practiced by you and I when we try to discern what is the right thing to do. One of those principles is what we call the one for five principle. Sometimes when you, for instance, in the trolley car, when you had the only two options before you in, a, in an out-of-control trolley car, your options were either to go straight, knowing that you'd run over and kill five people, or take a sidetrack, knowing that you'd run over and kill one. It was either one or the five, and those were the only two options. Most of you and most of the people in both services said, I would take the sidetrack because it would be better to kill one than to kill five if those were the only two options, the one for five principles principle that says what is right often 
is the thing that, that offers the best general welfare for the most people involved. But then there's also a principle that, that I call the values principle. The right thing to do often is, is it depends upon the values that we place upon all the people who are involved. Again, the trolley car incident. When I told you that the one person at the end of the sidetrack was either your only son or daughter or your brother or your father, then all of a sudden some people who had said they'd go to the right changed their mind because, and not everybody changed their mind, but some people changed their mind because they said, when, when, when you tell me it's someone I have a relationship with, that increases their value in my mind to the point where at the very least I've got to think some more before I go to the right. But for some people they said the value of that person increased to the point that I would have to go straight. So sometimes it's one for five principle. Sometimes it's a values principle. Sometimes uh, what we do, whether, whether we when we determine right from wrong, it is based upon the inherent nature of the act that we might commit. For instance, when I told you that you were no longer the trolley car operator, but you were standing on a bridge over the trolley car track, and you were watching the trolley car, and you realized that it was coming out of control. And if it goes straight, you'll run over and kill five men, five people at the end of the track. And I said to you, but if there's a very, very big man right there beside you on the bridge, smoking a cigarette, leaning over the edge of the bridge, you could nudge him. He'd fall off the bridge onto the track. It would stop the train and save the five people. You folks said you would not do that, that it was just plain wrong to do that. So all of a sudden, the one for five principle didn't hold. The values principle didn't connect at all because you didn't know the man. So there was no reason for it to value him above the other five. But the reason that we said it was wrong is because there are some acts that are just inherently evil. They're just wrong. It would be wrong to push the man over the bridge onto the track, even if in the process you had saved five people at the end of the track. Some things are just flat wrong. We learn from the book of Judges that uh, if you and I crack open the door of sin in our lives even ever so slightly and allow sin to come into our lives and tempt us that it uh, it hinders our ability to discern right from wrong sin in our lives hinders our ability to do what's right and then we also learned last week that sometimes in trying to figure out what is right from wrong we have to ask some people for some counsel we go to somebody that we respect I call them influencers and, and we ask them, what do you think? Here's my situation. What would you do if you were in the same situation? What is the right thing to do? Well, uh, in today's message, in this passage, uh, there is a, another principle that, that God's Word gives us to help us in determining what is the right thing to do. And I want to show you this principle, but in order to do that, I, I need to to give you a piece of information about the book of Judges. If you want to understand the book of Judges, one of the primary things you, that you and I have to understand is that in that book there is, repeated throughout, there is this cycle. I call it a downward spiral. And it's a six-step downward spiral that is described in detail in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. And then after that, the writer of Judges 
gets tired of describing it over and over again, and he just alludes to it. It's this downward spiral. Now, let me show you where it is. Let me show you the six steps of this downward spiral, and then I'll tell you the principle that these six steps teach us. Here it is. Step number one, Israel disobeys God. Now, listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 11. Here it is. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. I'll tell you, you hear that statement over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It's step one. The Israelites disobey God. Step number two. Israel's sin prompts God's anger, and so he hands them over to a foreign nation, an enemy nation. They disobey God. God hands them over to a foreign nation. We see this in chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to this. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed the Israelites over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. So Israel disobeys God. God hands them over to foreign nation. And then step number three. In their oppression, Israel cries out to God. Once they're in trouble... Like many of us do, once we get in trouble, then we start crying out to God. This is step number three. And we see this most clearly in Judges chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what chapter 3, verse 9 says. But when they cried out to the Lord, then he raised up for them a deliverer. So step three is that in their oppression, the Israelites cried out to God. Step number four. God hears their cry and he raises up a deliverer who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. This is in chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges or deliverers who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So Israel disobeys God. He hands them over to a foreign nation. In their oppression, they cry out to God. And step number four, God hears their cries and he uh, raises up a deliverer or a judge to rescue them. Step number five. God delivers Israel, and, and the deliverance is followed by, a, by the defeat of their enemy, by a period of peace under the leadership of the deliverer, and then the deliverer dies. So God, through the deliverer, delivers Israel. That's step number five. And then the final step in this downward cycle, this downward spiral, is this. Once the deliverer dies, the cycle starts all over again. Chapter 2, verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So Israel disobeys God. God hands them over to a foreign nation. They cry out to God for rescue. God raises up a deliverer. Under the leadership of the deliverer, God gives them deliverance. He rescues them. And then, step six, the deliverer dies, and they start the process all over again. Now, I want you to hear this. I've shown you this downward cycle. Now listen to this. There are 21 chapters in the book of Judges. In those 21 chapters, this downward cycle appears at least 17 times. 
We're talking about over and over and over again. They disobeyed God. God handed them over. They cried out to God. God raised up a deliverer. Under the deliverer, he gives them deliverance. Then the deliverer dies, and they go back to the start. What's the start? Israel disobeys God. He, God hands them over to a, a foreign nation. They cry out for rescue. He gives them a deliverer. He, he delivers them under the leadership of the deliverer. And then the deliverer dies, and they go back from the start. Well, what's the start? You see, it's just a repeated a repeated downward spiral, 17 times at least. I mean, in fact, the writer of Judges first describes it in detail. He gets so tired, it appears, of, of describing it in detail that he gets to the point where he just says, and again, God raised up a deliverer, and his name was such and such. And again, God raised up a deliverer. And each time it says that God raised up a deliverer, it's just implied that the downward cycle is what required or resulted in God raising up a deliverer. Now, what does this say to us? What does this repeated cycle 17 times throughout this book say to us? I believe that it says simply this, past experience give us insight on determining what is right. You see, here's what Israel did. They kept, they kept following this downward spiral. Why? Because they refused to look back to the way their forefathers lived under God's, in God's faithfulness, and they refused to learn from their own mistakes. And so they kept doing this 17 times throughout the book. I want you to get this. If you don't get another part of this message, if you don't get any of the radical stories that I throw out to you in this series, I want you to get this today. Past experience helps us to determine what is right. God uses our experiences as a way to help us. The Israelites did not learn the lessons from their past experience. And so if you don't learn the lessons from past experience, you doom yourself to repeat the mistakes of the past. They're not going to be the last ones to do that. In fact, there's an American company that does that. Back in 1999... The Philip Morris Tobacco Company sold a lot of cigarettes in the Czech Republic. In fact, they made a lot of money in Europe and beyond that into the Czech Republic. And the Czech Republic decided they were going to heavily tax the sale of cigarettes. And Philip Morris Company didn't like that. And so they hired the Arthur Little Consulting Group at a price of, t of tens of thousands of dollars and asked them to conduct a study among the Czech Republic. And the purpose of the study was to show that allowing and even encouraging the citizens of the Republic to smoke actually created revenue for the government that outweighed the value of the lives of the people who died. And here's what they found. They, of course, knew there were health care costs to cigarette smoking and encouraging people to smoke. I mean, there's cancer, there's asthma, there's all kinds of other lung diseases as well as, as uh, secondhand smoke diseases. They knew that, but they said there are also benefits. First of all, there are tax revenues for the government for the sale of cigarettes. Philip Morris said not only that, but there's a health care savings from the early deaths of people. You don't have to have health care costs because these people who smoke, they die younger, so it saves you money. 1999. Third, there are pension savings. Czech Republic uh, had uh, a, a, a government pension that went in 
to the retirement accounts of their people. And Philip Morris says, look, if you encourage these people to smoke early, start early and smoke all their lives, they will die young and you won't have as much money to spend in pension for retirement. And then they said, not only that, but you know, if, if people don't smoke, they're more likely to live uh, to an older age and, and have to be put in uh, assisted living centers and government housing. But if you encourage them to smoke, they die early. You have savings in housing costs for the elderly. I'm not making this one up. They said there's a net gain for the government of the Czech Republic. You gain $147 million in revenue every year if your citizens smoke. And that's a government savings from premature deaths of people who smoke of $1,227 per person per year. Now the press got a hold of that here in America and laid the boom to Philip Morris. So they moved their headquarters to Sweden. And of course, here in the States, what we get is commercials sponsored by Philip Morris trying to educate people and get people not to smoke. Don't smoke. Here's how to quit smoking. But over in Europe, they're conducting studies to show that if you get people to smoking, it'll save you money. Of course, they didn't mention anywhere in this study that it also created revenue for Philip Morris. They didn't want to put that in there. Now, they used two principles there. One of them was the value principle. They valued government and company revenue over the lives of human beings. But I'll tell you something they missed. You see, Philip Morris has been getting bad publicity ever since the 60s. You know that. A, a, a lot of government regulation, a lot of the, 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 the commercials they're putting on TV to try to get people to stop smoking, that's all, they're all forced to do that by the government now. But evidently, by 1999, and here's my point, they had failed to learn the lessons that they should have learned since 1960 here in America. They failed to learn those. And so they are repeating the mistakes of their past. I want to say again, if we listen to what God tells us through our past experiences, we are in a better position to do what is right in the future. Past experience helps us to determine what is right now. I came across several articles about Haiti. I know you've been following Haiti in the news and what's been going on there. I ran across uh, this article from uh, a newspaper reporter who is in Haiti. His name is Ethan Bronner. I don't know him, but he said this. He says, a week ago, ahead of most countries, Israel sent scores of doctors and other professionals, professionals into Haiti. Israel. It's amazing how many countries are now in Haiti trying to provide disaster relief. It's also interesting what countries are not there. There's not a, up until today, this may change, but up until today, there wasn't one single country represented from the Arab rich nations of the Persian Gulf in the Middle East. Isn't that interesting? But Israel, 
A nation that's not even as smaller than the state of Georgia has about the same population. They were among the first responders. They're on the other side of the world, and yet they were among the first responders. They have, they have a medical tent there that, aside from being a tent, has some machinery and equipment and expertise and, and materials there that is equal to what you'd find in any, any operating room at Emory University Hospital. They can, they can do a scan, an x-ray scan in this tent of a person with a broken limb and that requires surgery, and they can immediately, they have enough doctors and personnel there to get a second opinion, but if they need more, they, they have wireless technology set up at their tent. They can, they can send immediately that scan wirelessly to any doctor in the world and say, look at this, tell us what you think. It is streamlined. How do they do it? Why do they do things so well like that? I don't have to tell you about all the security risks we're in in our country and airports now, especially not only since 9-11, but since the uh, uh, botched terrorist attempt during the Christmas holidays. People have to line up, you know, go through lines and, and all kinds of security in airports. Listen, you and I in America, we, you know, we have, we have this security, these security levels, these heightened levels, and we stay somewhere about around uh, ice blue cool. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's one of the colors, but it, about around ice blue cool, you know, on, the, on the, the alert level. Occasionally, we'll go up one level to uh, not quite so ice blue cool. But in Israel, they're at red hot alert all the time. Out of necessity. They have to. And my friends, you can fly into Tel Aviv Airport. Some of you have done that. You can fly into Tel Aviv Airport. It'll be rare that you'll have, a, you'll have a line. If you have a line, it won't be as long as the lines we have here. And yet, they will thoroughly search you. Israel has the best security and the best emergency preparedness and the best disaster relief of any nation on earth. And they're smaller than the state of Georgia. How could that be? I'll tell you how it could be. You already know it. Their experience has taught them the necessity of security and preparedness and emergency disaster relief. What I'm saying to you is the nation of Israel today with regard to security and preparation and emergency, they have, they have learned the lessons from their past experience. And that past experience has led them to do the right thing thing now past experience if we handle it rightly enables us to do and know what is right let's pray our heavenly father lord doing right is not always so easy but lord we thank you that your word provides principles for us that help us to determine what is right and to do it. And Lord, we thank you for all the experiences that every one of us has had with you. And Lord, those experiences show us the right thing to do. Lord, I pray for people in this congregation right now who have never received you as Savior. Lord, it's been my experience that the greatest thing that we can do is have a relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray for anyone in this building right now who has never invited you into their heart to be Savior and Lord. 
Lord, I pray for those who are saved, but they haven't joined a church. And you've been dealing with them about joining this church. It's just the right thing to do. And Lord, I pray for people who are saved and they're members of the church, but they're struggling with some issue in their lives. It may not be as grave as a surgeon having to choose between two critically ill people. But Lord, it's still a decision that is serious for the people who are faced with it. Lord, help us during this invitation time to make decisions that will bring us closer to doing the right thing. We ask in Jesus' name.